We're going to, uh, I think, wrap up our series on the life of David uh, today. It's not, we're not going to take it quite to the actual end of his life, uh, but we are going to cover one of just the last kind of major story arcs uh, in 2 Samuel. And so far, we've mainly focused really on David's strengths, a lot of the things that he's done really well and how he was a great example in, in so many ways. Uh, but I've, I have mentioned a few times that he still was human, he still messed up, uh, and that you know I've kind of alluded to the fact that his story ends up culminating in a rather tragic decline towards the end. So this week we're actually going to read about one of the, the major ways that David sinned while he was king and the consequences of that. So it's a little bit more of a, a, a sad story today, just to, to warn you. We're going to pick up the story in... 2 Samuel chapter 11, so if you want to go ahead and find your place there. At this point, David's throne is now really well established. He's incredibly accomplished, uh, and he's kind of just riding the wave of, of victory after victory over Israel's enemies. And then in chapter 11, 2 Samuel, we get this introduction first uh, to the, the narrative that's about to take place. So in verse 1 we read, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So we see that it's, uh, it's the spring slash war season. Uh, it's a time when the, the cold and the rain would be subsiding. So it's and crops are growing, there's plenty of food, so it's an optimal time to send troops out to battle. And th so David's sending them out on a military expedition, this mission. But it is interesting how it specifies that this is a time when kings would normally uh, go out to war, but David sent Joab and, and stayed behind. And this tells us, first of all, that David, did he trusted Joab as his commander to... Uh, of the commander of his armies to get the job done. But it might, it's, this isn't 100% clear, but it's certainly possible that this is intended as kind of just a hint that something is amiss with David. It seems to imply some level of irresponsibility on David's part as a leader that he would stay behind and let everyone else fight his battles for him. Again, there's not really a scholarly consensus as to whether or not this verse should be read as a criticism of David's character, but regardless of whether it is intended that way, we only have to read a little bit further to find that David's heart was really not, in fact, in a good place at this time. So in, uh, starting in verse 2, it says, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and, his, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So, 
David's army is out laying siege to the Ammonite uh, capital city. And in the very next verse after reading that, we find David's taking an afternoon nap. Uh, and then a leisurely stroll around the roof of his palace. And now whether or not the fact that David stayed behind was in itself wrong, it certainly seems to have left him with not really a lot to do with himself, not a lot to keep him busy. And the saying comes to my mind, uh, have you ever heard the saying, that idle hands are the devil's workshop? It's kind of a, one of those common sayings. It's not, really a, it's not a phrase you'll find directly in the Bible. It's not a verse of the Bible. But I do think the principle of that is certainly in line with biblical wisdom. Uh, the Bible, of course, it doesn't advocate that anyone become workaholics or busybodies. And in fact, the Bible places a lot of importance on, and, and value on rest and the importance of that. However, it's also clear in warning against idleness and laziness. So that is, you know, not doing something when you should be doing something. So anyway, David, he's having a leisurely old time, strolling along on his rooftop. And generally, uh, the, the rooftops there would have been flat. So it was normal to kind of use that space as part of your, your living area, your living space. And David, being in the palace, would have most likely been in the highest building of the city. So he would have had a great view overlooking Jerusalem, his, his capital city of his kingdom. And this, this is a, just a little bit of speculation on my part, but I have to kind of imagine him walking around with a sense of accomplishment and pride in this great city that he's kind of built up. Sense of ownership. And as he's looking out over his city, he lays eyes on this incredibly attractive woman taking a bath. And he thinks, I, I want her. And the fact that <clears throat> his response then to that desire was just to send out some messengers, basically summon her to him so he could sleep with her, that really reveals just how far he's come in this moment in a negative way from that really humble uh, and, and God-honoring man who didn't even consider himself initially worthy to marry the king's daughter, Saul's, Saul's daughter, even when he had technically earned the right to do so through his victory over the Philistines, all of a sudden it's just like he feels entitled to possess anything that his eyes desire. And of course that, that pattern of sin traces all the way back to the garden, the pattern of humans seeing something, wanting it, and taking it for themselves with no regard to what God has commanded or the consequences that will follow. And it's interesting, we're not really told anything about Bathsheba's role in all of this, whether she was kind of complicit in it or more of a victim or what any of her emotions or, or possible motives would have been. The focus really is on David and the fact that Bathsheba was another man's wife and that David, as the king, made the decision to have an affair with another man's wife. And the only response we have recorded from Bathsheba is the fact that she sent word to David that she became pregnant. And just as a side note here, in the, the version I read, the New Living Translation, it, does, it specifies that she is purifying herself because of her menstrual cycle, which that was just part of the Jewish ritual law, but that isn't actually specified in the original text. It just says that she was purifying herself. But a lot of people have come to the assumption that this detail would have been included because it makes it clear that 
there's no way Uriah, her husband, could have been the father of the child when she became pregnant. So it does make sense, but I wanted to point out that this translation that, that I just read is taking some liberties there. But it is, it is a logical assumption. So anyway, after David gets this news that Bathsheba's pregnant, he's just going to start turning one bad decision into more bad decisions. So let's read on, uh, beginning in verse 6 now. <clears throat> David then sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah being Bathsheba's husband. So Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And he told Uriah, Go on home and relax. David, David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't, why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah, Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to my wife and... Or, Go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife. I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So basically, David thinks that he can cover up this sin, cover up the pregnancy by getting Uriah to sleep with his wife while he's home on leave from the battlefield. But twice, Uriah refuses to enjoy and partake in the comforts of home while, while his commander and his fellow men are still out in the field. He does this out of a sense of duty and honor. And there's even, it was, it was tradition to uh, follow Levitical law and not become impure while in battle because the battleground was actually a sacred place and to have relations with his wife would have then caused him to become impure and he wouldn't be able to go and join the battlefield immediately. So this just it paints a, a, a very <clears throat> um, contrasting picture of Uriah's character versus David's at this moment. And then it just, it just gets worse. So the next morning, starting in verse 14, so the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So David literally has Uriah delivering his own death sentence to Joab. And that's pretty cold. At this point, it really seems like David's actions have become quite villainous. He reads more like a villain now than a hero. So, Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So Joab, who we know from you know, other parts of the story, that he's a very accomplished, very, he's a, an accomplished general, he's a strategist. 
but he had to make a really stupid move, tactically speaking, and it ended up killing more than just Uriah. Several other soldiers were killed, and yet Joab didn't question David's orders, and his soldiers didn't seem to question Joab. So, but there had to be some questioning, at least in Joab's mind, as to what Uriah could have possibly done to deserve this, this fate. And I just wonder how difficult that would have been, knowingly sending those men to their deaths and just trusting that the king had a good reason for it. So then in verse 18, then, Joab sent a battle report to David. He told the messenger, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, Why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? And then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and we chased them back to the city gate. The archers on the wall shot arrows at us, and some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, <clears throat> tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today, that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and, and conquer the city. <laughs> David's response there is just, it's chilling. He has no compassion here, no empathy, no remorse. As long as he gets what he wants, as long as his sin stays hidden, he's just totally callous to the death and the sorrow that he's caused. And it did cause sorrow. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Yeah, I don't know why. The Lord was displeased. And a more literal translation here is actually, but the thing which... David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. We talked about that word evil a few weeks ago, and the word, that word evil in Hebrew here is not that ambiguous word ra that we talked about that really just means bad. This is an unambiguous indictment. I, I looked up the word. I'm not going to try to pronounce this one because it's kind of tricky, but it's not ra. It's an unambiguous just wicked, evil, destructive, hurtful, harmful behavior in the eyes of Yahweh. So, God's not going to just let it slide. He's going to confront this through a prophet named Nathan. Let's continue reading in, into chapter 12 now. So, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many of sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. So the prophet Nathan tells David this, <clears throat> excuse me, this parable. So it's a story of just this terrible injustice that was uh, inflicted by a rich man taking a poor man's uh, poor lamb selfishly. 
And what's David's response? David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. Repaying four lambs is actually part of Levitical law. But David clearly, he's so blind to his own sin that he doesn't see, he doesn't recognize that this parable is about him. He has pity for this poor man and for the lamb and the, the, the sheep in the story, but he has no pity for Uriah or Bathsheba or the other soldiers who had died because of him. So Nathan had to kind of break it to him, hit him over the head with it. Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, <clears throat> you, <clears throat> sorry, from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. So, in no uncertain terms here, God is charging David with murder, and he's promising some pretty serious fallout as a consequence. And I can just imagine the, re the realization suddenly hitting David, because obviously he was clueless before, but hearing that story and feeling the outrage towards that rich man and seeing how bad that was, but then seeing that rich man kind of morph into his own self-reflection and seeing himself in that story, he was that man who did such a terrible thing. Far worse even than the man in the story. And we see that, fortunately, David immediately then turns to repentance. In verse 13 it says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So David kind of finally wakes up, he confesses his sin, and in fact, there is an entire prayer found in the book of Psalms that directly relates to this event. If you want to turn there, Psalm 51 is, it's a prayer of repentance, it's a plea for mercy written by David, and a lot of the Psalms written by David coincide directly to a lot of the various events that we've been reading through in First and Second Samuel. But we don't, or at least I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't often read the Psalms in conjunction with the stories that they coincide with. So I want to take this opportunity now to actually read through this prayer. Parts of it are actually quite well known. But keeping in mind that this context of having just been confronted by Nathan and realizing how badly he's messed up, this is David's prayer in response. Psalms 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. 
completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So in that prayer, I just think it's so cool to see so much more of David's heart than we see in just that one sentence in, in 2 Samuel. It's a heart of true repentance and of brokenness and remorse and submission before God. And that is always the proper response to conviction. But all that said, he was confessing to some pretty serious offenses. He had violated at least three of God's commands because he coveted his neighbor's wife. He, uh, he committed adultery then and then committed murder. And according to God's law, as we can see in Leviticus, the penalty for adultery was death. The penalty for murder was death. So God saying you won't die for this sin was an act of grace and mercy. And David recognized that. And he didn't offer anything to God to earn God's forgiveness. Not even a ritual sacrifice, just confession and repentance. And this tells tells us something about God's character and his desire to continue to use David despite his failures. And of course, we know that God has extended that same grace to us through Christ. And I'll get back to that in a minute, but even though God forgave him, God didn't take away all of the the physical consequences for David's sin, did he? And as we read through the rest of the chapter, I'm just going to kind of summarize. But we see that the baby does, in fact, die. Despite David, he fasts and he pleads to God to change his mind. But once it was final, the baby died. David accepted the consequences of his actions and was able to move on. And in verse 24, we actually read that he comforted Bathsheba, for, who for the first time is actually called David's wife in verse 24. And... By God's grace, he allowed 
David and Bathsheba to then have a relationship, even after all the mess that David created. And he blessed them with another son, Solomon, who, of course, is then a very important figure later in the story. That said, there were still, besides just the, the death of her first child, there were still other consequences that were suffered by David's family. And then, in turn, really all of Israel suffered because of this. And in the chapters that we follow, we just see a downward spiral of dysfunction and of broken relationships in David's family. So just to kind of briefly summarize several chapters of drama, uh, which you can feel free to read on your own, but first of all, one of David's sons, Amnon, he became, he becomes infatuated with his half-sister Tamar and rapes her and then just discards her and she ends up living the rest of her life as a desolate woman. King David hears about this, and he's very angry, but he doesn't really do anything about it. Meanwhile, Tamar's brother, Absalom, just festers in hatred about this situation. And two years later, he orchestrates a revenge on Amnon by having him killed. And then shortly after that, Absalom leads a revolt against David, and he usurps the throne. Eventually, Absalom was killed, and David was restored to the throne but it was as kind of a broken man and in mourning for his son. Kind of a side note, too. David actually ended up losing four sons. And in the parable of the, the rich man and the, the sheep, the, uh, the penalty for stealing the poor man's sheep was to give four sheep back, and that was part of the Levitical law. David lost four sons after this event. little trivia. <clears throat> So then the, the remainder of David's life, it continued to be rather tumultuous. Uh, but he, and there, was, there was a few more things that happened that we're not going to get into today. But he, through it all, he, really, he never lost sight uh, of God's promise to him. And God continued to use him and to bless Israel through him. And like I said, there's a few more interesting bits to his life, but for today I just want to wrap up by looking at a few things that we can learn specifically from this story of David and Bathsheba. Four things. First of all, <laughs> it's a great reminder just to be careful when we think we're strong and we think we've got it all together, that that's often when we're actually the most vulnerable to attacks and, and deception from the enemy. And we see this warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It's just very concise. And also we see this in Proverbs 16, 18. It's a very famous uh, proverb. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. David, he allowed his success and his power and his status to cloud his judgment. And we need to be careful not to do the same, not to let our guard down or forget that everything we have and do is because of God. And the second thing, and this is maybe the most obvious takeaway, is just how dangerous of a pitfall lust can be. It's a pitfall that turned a man who seemed to be able to do everything well, a man who is known after, as, as the man after God's own heart, turned him into someone almost unrecognizable and, and completely blind to his own sin and, and cruelty. And God placed a great deal of importance on sexual morality in his law. That was one way he wanted his people to be set apart from 
the other cultures surrounding them. And one of the, the Ten Commandments, of course, forbids adultery. But Jesus took it a step further when he said uh, in Matthew 5.28 that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think it almost goes without saying, really, that this issue of lust and sexual immorality is very prevalent in our society today, and it, it just takes hold of so many men and women in the form of unhealthy addictions, destructive affairs, and just broken relationships. And our, our culture and our technology certainly makes it just increasingly all the more difficult to avoid these things. And we certainly need to be conscious of that and int- intentional to avoid potential traps that we can fall into. But at the same time, I think this story is also a reminder that culture and technology are ultimately not to blame for adultery and, and covetousness and lust. What we experience today is, is the same corruption of desire that ensnared David, that ensnared Amnon thousands of years ago. And yes, our culture is very different now, but I can tell you that God's people were still surrounded by all kinds of temptation during the time of Abraham, during the time of David, and in the time of Jesus and, and Paul. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, through 5, because it was, it was a prevalent issue. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. And this passage, is that's just one of many New Testament uh, passages calling us to be set apart in sexual purity. And yet this does bring me back to the incredible grace of God who is willing to forgive even the most terrible and and tragic decisions. By confessing our sin and by trusting in the redemptive power of Christ, we can repent and we can receive that grace. But it's important to remember as we see demonstrated in this story that receiving that grace doesn't necessarily mean we won't experience any consequences for our actions. Sin of all kinds uh, can, can result in physical and emotional and, and relational fallout. And not only just for the person sinning, but for people surrounding them. And we need to recognize that as just the reality of sin. That's why we live in a world with so much pain and, and suffering. And while we can receive forgiveness, realize that doesn't necessarily mean life will just automatically, magically go back to the way it was before. So just as an obvious example, if you decide to go out and murder someone, can God forgive you? Well, we see just in David's story that obviously, yes, God can forgive a murderer, but if you go out and murder someone, the consequence for you today would probably be you go to prison for a very long time, if not the rest of your life. So forgiveness doesn't necessarily equal just no consequences. And, and this part of David's life is just a perfect example of that. And then finally, the fourth thing is that I just think it's a great example of how God can choose to use someone like David in the midst of all of that. No matter how bad we mess up or how self-destructive our decisions might be at times, God in his grace will still 
partner with us in accomplishing his mission. And that's incredible. That should be a great hope and assurance for anyone who's been through some, maybe some big mistakes in the past, but then repented and received God's grace. If you have confessed and repented, then it's, it's time to move on. While there may be repercussions that follow, and you have to accept that, you don't need to live under a burden of guilt or of shame because Jesus carried that burden for you. I want to say that again. If you have received God's grace, you must not live under a burden of guilt or of shame because Jesus has already carried that burden for you. So looking, kind of looking back over the last, the five uh, weeks that we've looked at the life of David, we can learn a lot from his story, both from his good example and in, through the, the bad. But perhaps, I think more importantly, we can learn about God's character, about who he is and how he chooses to work in and through his people. Opposing the proud and exalting the humble. Accomplishing his will despite human evil. And then, of course, his, his provision of the ultimate Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.